Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, the Premier League is back with a bang and an action-packed morning needs Michael Bridges, former Premier League star and former Socceroo Tommy Orr to break it all down. Is Frank Lampard's time up at Everton? Are Arsenal bona fide title contenders? And what will Newcastle, Manchester United and Liverpool do in the transfer window? I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Pod. Yeah, what a morning of Premier League it was. We've all just finished watching on Optus Sport. Tommy Orr, former Socceroo. Michael Bridges, former Premier League star. In the Gegen pod with us for this one. Full-time scores Everton 1, Brighton 4. Arsenal and Newcastle draw 0-0. Leicester and Fulham finishes in a 1-0 win to Fulham. And at the time of recording, Man United 3-0 up against Bournemouth in stoppage time. That is how fresh this podcast is. We need to start, though, with Everton is it the end for Frank Lampard? Michael Bridges, by the time people listen to this, will Everton have released an official statement? Or do you think Frank Lampard is going to survive a heavy home defeat? Before we start, Teo, Tommy, Happy New Year to you. All the best for 2023. And to all the listeners, have a great year. If the football in the Premier League since we start off the World Cup is anything to go by, it's going to be a fantastic year. And it is a great start for... 2023 for the Premier League, but it's a nightmare for Lampard and Everton. I think we will, not long after this podcast, if alone the end of the week, Lampard will be gone. I I went down to watch the game on Boxing Day. I was doing the core comms for PLP and Optus Sport. I was at Goodison Park when Wolves and Lopetegui got the 2-1 victory later on in the game. And I've got to say, Everton just looks so out of sort, they ran out of ideas, they couldn't finish, and to get smashed at home, they, the fans were annoyed on Boxing Day, so I dread to think what Goodison Park is like now, he will be gone. Happy New Year to everyone as well, like Bridgie said, and um, yeah, I guess on Frank Lampard, like Bridgie just touched on, I think that the the atmosphere at Goodison looked really toxic, to be honest, and um, if you see the, the way... They conceded some of the goals and how sloppy they were. I think um, it's really hard for, for Lampard to come back from this. So I completely agree. I think that his his days or perhaps even his hours are, are definitely numbered. Three wins from 18. The goal difference is now down to minus 10. But they are still one point above Nottingham Forest in the relegation zone. Two points above Wolves. Three points above Southampton. Given what a tight race it is, and you're only ever two consecutive wins away from just leaping right out of the relegation battle into mid-table, is there any chance at all, Tommy, any chance at all that Everton keep the faith with Frank Lampard? Or does it largely depend on if they have his successor lined up and they're ready to execute a change? Well, I'm sure that that's definitely a part of it, what you said about having a successor lined up. But I think that... Um, it, like Bridgie touched on, he mentioned the game on Boxing Day, but I think if you look at um, how Everton have got to this point, I think that a lot of people will, will, will believe that Frank Lampard's been given enough opportunity and that he hasn't quite done enough even before tonight's game. And I think, you know, tonight might be the straw that broke the camel's back in that regard. It's not like it was just a bad night at the office. I think this has been coming, a result like this. So, um, as you mentioned, that they're still obviously not in the relegation zone, but you know, the trajectory that they're on is not looking promising at all. So I think that, you know, that there, there's an argument to be made that there's there, it's a greater risk to keep him in charge than there is to, to, uh, to bring someone else in, even if there's nobody lined up immediately. I think the draw with Man City was a little bit of a smokescreen or getting a little bit of the, you know, when you can cover up the, the wounds that are appearing. The draw got him a few more breathing spaces, but at Goodison Park, getting beat again... Like you were saying, Tommy, you, you've heard that it is toxic. It was toxic prior to this game. I think it's um, it's inevitable. They need to make a change, and I think they need to make it very, very quickly because I didn't see, like I say, it, it, 
it's when you kind of know when a manager's days are numbered when some of the players are st- stop working and Wolves got the counter-attack on them. Um, they showed a little bit of faith against Man City, but unfortunately, I think they've just run out of steam. They've run out of ideas and they need to make a quick change. Otherwise, Everton will be in the championship next season. Now, the odds, and of course, at the time of recording, Frank Lampard is still in the job, but there's always a market for these sort of things. Next permanent Everton manager, Wayne Rooney is unbackable. Oh, not unbackable, but he's a very warm favourite. Uh, Sean Dyche, David Moyes, Roberto Martinez, Marcelo Bielsa, Ange Postacoglu. Any of those names grab you, Bridgie, or is it maybe go back to someone like a Duncan Ferguson in the interim while they wait for the absolute perfect replacement? Or is it as simple as Rooney's on the market, Rooney in you come? Well, it's great to know that Ange is getting a mention, by the way, in the Premier League. Um, he would be absolutely mad to leave Celtic and um, after all the things that he is doing uh, and the success that he's having there, it'd be crazy to go to a team that are, are in a relegation fight. I know Ange loves a challenge. Um, would he turn his nose up? You don't. You just never know with Ange. I think he'd relish the challenge, um, knowing he would back himself and get them out of trouble. Does he need it? I would say no. Wayne Rooney. You go from an ex-player on Frank Lampard, who had a had a spell at Derby. He's done it at Chelsea. He hasn't shown it um, at Chelsea or at Everton. Do you do that with Rooney? Do you take a big gamble? I think the fans would be back on board with that one. Would I like to see it? Um, yeah, I would actually. Do you know what it is? I'd, I'd like to see, I'd like to see Wayne Rooney come in and have Duncan Ferguson as his backup and get get big spunky Dunky back as his assistant. That would appease the fans, and I think them too, with the passion and the DNA of Everton, I think they would have enough to to save this team. The big thing that they've got to hold on to though is Gordon for January. Um, I think if they lose Gordon, they're they're in serious trouble if they don't buy anybody. Completely agree. I think that you know it'd be, it'd be amazing to see Rooney um, back in charge at his boyhood club, but. You know, given this, you know, relegation football isn't necessarily um, something that, like you mentioned, Bridgie would appeal to a lot of managers. And for someone like Ange, I think that him having a full preseason to work with the team would be something that he would value. So I can't really see him, you know, being too maybe enthusiastic about this job given the, the scenario. But I think that, yeah, I think that the experience in the Premier League as well might come into it. So I think that, you know, a manager like Sean Dyche would actually be perfect for this situation. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them go that way. Well, watch this space for Everton. Just a quick word on the team that did beat them, Brighton, up to 27 points, only one behind Liverpool, sitting eighth. So they're a cut above the relegation teams and they are at the top end of mid-table pushing for spots in Europe. Roberto De Zerbi, he didn't get off to a flying start. The T's teams were playing nice football but weren't getting the results. Now they very much are, Tommy. How high can this Brighton team go? Yeah, like you mentioned, obviously when Potter left, there was a little bit of question marks as to whether they would continue on the, in kind of the, the, you know, the form that they'd shown up to that point and it took him a little bit of time to you know, get the team doing what he wants. But yeah, I think they've proven themselves to be more than capable and they're, they're, a, they're a really plucky opponent. They play great football and they've got very capable players and I think that they're one of those teams that, you know, all the big sides in, in, in the league don't enjoy playing against them and they've proven that by some of the upsetting results that they've had so far this season. So, I mean, yeah, they're a joy to watch and hopefully we can see them break into those European spots in, at the end of the season. Let's move on to the other big result of the morning. Not so much in terms of goal scoring, but certainly in terms of drama and tension in the game because it was Arsenal drawing nil-nil with Newcastle United at the Emirates Stadium. I suspect, Bridgie, this is a better point for Newcastle than it is for Arsenal. But what was your read on the actual contest and the ebb and flow of the game? Oh, I mean, the travelling fans from Newcastle have made the journey to London. At the Emirates in the last 11 games, Newcastle have not seen a victory in all competitions, right? The last six matches at the Emirates, Newcastle have conceded 14 and scored none. So yet again, they have scored none now in seven. But what have they done? They've come away with a point. And that is absolutely massive when you think about um, where Arsenal are, how they have been playing. Just had a few of my mates texting me already, just saying, what a trip. This is well being worth it. You know, we're, we're in a title. I think if Newcastle had won this game, they would have been in a title, definitely in a title race. However, the reality is the top four for them now. And when you look at the fixtures that Arsenal have got to come and Man City, um, I think Arsenal have got, Arsenal Man City have got a really tough run in for the next, for the next month. Um, where they've got to play both Manchester United and both Spurs. Uh, Newcastle, on the other hand, after this game, they've got Crystal Palace, Bournemouth, Fulham, 
Uh, I know there's no easy game in the Premier League, but when you look at the top three, they you know they've got the easier of the of the games coming up in January. The windows open. Uh, and overall, this result was absolutely huge. Newcastle dominated against Leeds the other night. They couldn't score a goal. They didn't dominate tonight, but they turned on the defensive unit yet again. Another clean sheet for Eddie Howe. So, yeah, they're, they're absolutely buzzing. I think it's, I was laughing at the end, though, because um, Arteta was absolutely fuming. They didn't get the penalty decision. And it was great to see Eddie Howe just wind him up on the sideline because Eddie normally stays out of it. He concentrates on it, but he was just sick of Arteta and he kind of just said, sit down, you sit down, you D-head. This is, you know, the game's over and done. It's a great result. And, and that, that's a, I thought it was a, a fair result in the end, to be honest with you. Well, I think we know Bridgie's thoughts on the penalty shot. Tommy, give us your thoughts on the penalty shot right at the end, the potential handball, and also you just your thoughts on the game in general. Yeah, I agree with Bridgie. I think that it definitely wasn't a penalty. I think that it probably probably was a little bit of um, you know Arsenal being frustrated and perhaps desperate given you know the the situation in the game. But yeah, like Bridgie touched on, I thought Newcastle defended fantastically, and you know the way that Almiron and Joel Linton you know, double up and their work rate defensively tonight to, to double up on, you know, Saka and Martinelli. I guess that, that kind of mentality has been, you know, a cornerstone as to why Newcastle's been so successful this season. They, they play as such a strong unit and they're really, really difficult to break down and which their defensive record proves. And I think, you know, Arsenal started this game on fire and I thought in the first five minutes they created a couple of chances and for the rest of the 85 minutes they didn't really create too much at all. So... You know, I think that, you know, the Gabriel Jesus, everyone's been talking a lot about how much Arsenal will miss him. And I think a game like tonight probably showed just how much they might miss him. Um, and whether they go into the into the uh, transfer market in January to replace him, I guess time will tell. I have to say, mine, Tommy, the referee, um, it was his first game over here on the, on the big screen. I think the occasion got him. He got very emotional. There was cards coming out left, right and centre. And it was kind of like, hi, I'm here. He was he's basically telling all his family and friends that he was in the middle of the pitch and dishing out <laughs> and it was all about him. He, he kind of did spoil it. But the VR decision at the end, I felt was, was the correct decision. And I've got to say, Tommy, it's 2023. You don't have to agree with everything, mate. You're meant to put up a defence and absolutely abuse me. I'm giving you licence to go for it because Swartzy abuses me every episode on this. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling the love, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start having an argument with you soon. <laughs> well, one thing I, I wanted to raise here, Bridgie, I mean, you mentioned that Newcastle didn't create a great deal, but the stats would suggest that arguably Joel Linton had the best chance of the game in first half stoppage time. And I know that the curmudgeons don't like XG out there, but Newcastle 1.08, Arsenal 1.13, so much of a muchness. And Newcastle did that with only 33% of possession. Arsenal definitely controlled yeah. a lot more of the ball and the territory. But Newcastle, I guess, if they're going to go away to other title contenders and play like this, are you satisfied that that'll do for this season? And is it next season where we can start to expect to see them uh, maybe having a greater foothold in the game when they go away from home to other teams around them at the pointy end of the table. What's super impressed for me is not the Newcastle, it's Eddie Howe and the way he can have a game that I watched the other night at St James's Park against Newcastle, dominating possession, pressing the ball really well, creating chances at will and they just were not clinical. They squandered so many chances. And they go away to a title contender, like you say, a team where they've conceded so many goals in, in um, the games I was talking about and not not scored. They've been able to go there and not not control the possession, but control their defensive units and not allow too many clean-cut opportunities for Arsenal. Like you say, you're always going to get moments in a game where you can create, but I just I love the way that Eddie Howe tactically is able to have these players singing off the same hymn page, whether it's attacking, whether it's possession, whether he wants them defensively, and they're all working their socks off. There was about four of them went down with cramp. The games are coming thick and fast, and um, that, that is the super impressive thing because these players under Steve Bruce were absolutely honking. You're questioning were they actually Newcastle United players, let alone Premier League players. So fair play to them. I, I think that's a huge result and massive kudos to Eddie Howe in Newcastle. You've got to go and do that against teams where you, you know you're going to surrender possession. So you've, you've got to credit it. Eddie Howe deserves a lot of credit because um, you know they're, they're playing as more than a sum of their parts at the moment. And um, you know I think if they play the same way they did tonight, um, against you know the Manchester Cities, the Manchester Uniteds, these kinds of opponents, um, you, you always think that they might score. You know, with their physical presence as well, off corners and these types of things, they always look lively and uh, like a threat. So, 
um, you know, the, the template is there and you can see now with, with Eddie Howe, he's probably earned a lot of the trust of the club as well. So if they can add, you know, more depth and a little bit more uh, quality in the windows to come into the future, you can definitely see Newcastle kind of climbing into that traditional top three or top four on a more consistent basis, which I'm sure uh, all their fans would love to see. Let's move on to Manchester United. They are now level with Newcastle on points, but still behind them on goal difference. Now five clear of Tottenham in fourth spot and seven clear of Liverpool after an equal number of games played, holding on to that Champions League place. Marcus Rashford scores the third of the three goals, but Casemiro and Luke Shaw were the other goal scorers. So, Tommy, even though they've won 3-0 against Bournemouth today and they are starting to get some really good form up under Eric Ten Hag, is it still imperative that they hit the market for a striker in January? I think so. Um, I think if you look at their squad and the makeup of their squad, it's probably the one key piece missing from their team right now. And, you know, they obviously have a wealth of talent and they've got goal scorers, as tonight proved, on all kind of parts of the pitch. But, you know, when they're coming up against the, the traditional top teams in the league, I think they will need an out-and-out goal scorer. And um, obviously Rashford's form in the last kind of, or since the World Cup, has been fantastic and um, obviously he's taken a little bit of the of the pressure off them dipping into the market um, you know as soon as perhaps they might have had his form been different I think that you know for, for consistent and for them to be able to su- uh, sustain their current form they probably need to, to go in and get a number nine. I've just been super impressed since the return after the World Cup um, Ten Hag getting his Again, his message across. I think the the Ronaldo saga is finally over and he can concentrate on the players that, that are there. The club have backed the manager uh, and they've realised that you know it's, it's a team game. It's not all about me and the selfish side of it. So he's been able to get on that and the players that have come on backs from the World Cup, Rashford has been absolutely incredible. And I just feel like some of them have had the shackles let off them and they're understanding now the way that he wants them to press. They're creating chances and they're taking their, their opportunities and they deserve to be in the top the top four with the, the run they've had since the return. Um, Striker-wise, I still say that they do... They, if Man United can add to that, you know, Anthony hasn't hit the ground running that well. Rashford's taken a lot of the, the limelight, which he should do. Casemiro's been a brilliant sign. Uh, I, I would love to see a nice tasty number nine coming for them somebody that we can all admire and and I think Man United fans are just waiting for that they've lost Ronaldo let's get somebody in that's young well young youngish or at the peak of their career fresh and who's available it would be that's what they're waiting for we will get to some of those names that they might target in our transfer window segment of the Gegen pod but you mentioned Anthony there Bridgie and I think that's a pretty good segue to go into Liverpool because, of course, they lost earlier this week 3-1 against Brentford, first time since the 1930s that Brentford had defeated Liverpool. And Darwin Nunez was again the target of much scrutiny and ridicule. His name has come up frequently on the Pod this year. But uh, let me put it in this context, Bridgie. Darwin Nunez versus Jack Grealish versus Anthony. Who has actually been the best or worst return on investment for their respective clubs? Well, the the best return, and he hasn't actually been amazing, has got to be Grealish because he's lifted the Premier League title. And he went out and celebrated for about 99 days. And he's a player that I, I really admire. He's had to adapt a total new philosophy under Pep. That's what I do respect because at Villa he had a free role. He was exciting. He was everywhere. I think he's learned the defensive roles and what it means to be a team player rather than just being that standout man. Sometimes you see him high and wide on the left all the time. I don't like seeing him there. I love it when he drifts inside. So for me, he has been the one that's probably learnt so much more to become that team player to win things. And you've got to respect that because it was all about Jack. Nunez, I'm still going to back him. I'd... I don't care what you're going to give us, Teo. I'm going to back him because he is getting a lot of opportunities. But I've got to say, the right foot shot the other night against Brentford when he dragged it across goal and it almost went out for a throw and let alone a blooming goal kick. He dragged it that wide. That was so frustrating. Now, he did several the other night on his right side. He's got the, he's got the pace. He makes the dynamic runs. He's a hard worker. But I, I'm, I am questioning his finishing ability on that right side. I think once he gets one, he's going to get a hat full. I've got a, a, a hope I'm right. And Anthony, he's a showboater. I think when he gets a number nine, he can bounce passes off. We'll see the best of him. But I'm taking Jack Grealish out the three of them so far. 
yeah, I think if you look at the um, the eye-watering transfer fees that they all obviously you know got for for, for the to go to these clubs, I think it's almost indif- impossible, sorry, to to live up to to the height of that fee or to justify that fee, and that's kind of the way that the transfer market's going. So from that perspective, I do sympathise with the players a little bit because. Um, you know, it's almost an impossible ask to live up to, to the expectations. But, you know, the likes of Nunes, and you touched on his, his shot from the right-hand side, um, and I think that kind of summarises why everyone's so frustrated with him at the moment. And, um, you know, obviously there was big shoes to fill when Mane left, and um, even last year, when or la- in the last seasons, when Liverpool would concede two or three goals, you would back them to score four and to go on and win the game. And it kind of you know, papered over or it kind of covered up a lot of their defensive frailties. And because not only Nunes, but they've been more wasteful in the front third, it's highlighted their defensive frailties as well this season. So um, for sure, I think that I agree with Bridgie. I think that it's still early and I still think there's a lot of time for him to come good. But I think that, you know, the fans are probably starting to get a little bit impatient and I can understand why. Uh, My question is, why is it that Nunes is the lightning rod for Liverpool dropping all these points when... Any analysis of the team tends to focus on their midfield and talking about that. Is it purely a price tag thing, Tommy? And why is it that, I guess, the the low-hanging fruit or the easy argument of Nunez, big price, he's a flop, is the reason that it leads all the Liverpool discussion? I think that Bridgie can obviously go into more detail about this, but I think that kind of comes with the territory of being a goal scorer. You know, when times are good and you're scoring goals, you're you're the man, you're you're the hero, and when times are not good, you're probably the villain. And that's just the nature of the position. You know, it's it's the uh, it's the the glory position, and I think that's probably a little bit of of the tale with him. And um, like I mentioned, obviously in in seasons gone by, Liverpool scored goals for fun and. They did concede goals in some games, but they would always seem to outscore their opponents. And, you know, as soon as they stop scoring so freely, they're not getting the points they were before. And then you can ask questions more widely about their midfield or defensively or whatever it is. So I think that um, goal scoring probably is their biggest issue right now. And if they can rectify that, then they can turn around their season. But obviously him being, you know, the new expensive number nine, um, yeah, a, a lot of that responsibility is resting on his shoulders. So I think that kind of explains the narrative and why he's copping a lot of the blame. I think the midfield is a bit of a cop-out, the aging midfield. It's as a, as a team, they concede in, in offering teams too many chances. Now, you can't blame Nunez for that. There's chances getting created. They've been scoring goals in the past. The, Liverpool will always create chances. But what they've found, they've... Brentford found a way the other night to overload the midfield. Thomas Frank was absolutely marvellous in what he did. They changed their system a couple of times um, with and without the ball and it really frustrated Liverpool and when they had the opportunity to press the two centre-halves they did that but they also sat on Thiago and I thought it was it was um, a very, very spirited performance. We all say, oh, Liverpool, oh, they've, they've, they've lost. They, have, they must have had an off day. Brentford were absolutely magnificent so you've got to, I'm not taking anything away from Liverpool. I'm going to credit Brentford for that result. It hadn't got anything to do with Nunez not scoring the goals or creating the, getting the chances he created. The midfield were overrun. So I've got a question. Did Jurgen Klopp have enough to go up against Thomas Frank? Or are teams working out now how to sometimes get results more often than not against Liverpool now? Yeah, and I think if you look at the way that Liverpool did defend in that first half against Brentford, particularly offset pieces, I think Brentford had two goals disallowed um, off their corners and they scored one as well. And, you know, if you're, if you're from a Liverpool perspective, if you're conceding goals so easily off set pieces, that is something that you would expect. You know, that that's bread and butter. If you want to be competing for titles, you can't be giving away chances so easily. And I think in one of the one of the goals that got ruled out, the guy was nine yards from goal and had time to bring it down on his chest and get a shot away off a corner. And I mean that that's that just can't happen, you know, and I'm sure that Liverpool will be asking a lot of questions about that, but as you mentioned, Bridgie, Brentford was fantastic and they've proven yet again how hard of a place that is to go and they've obviously knocked off quite a few of the top teams so far in the, in the last couple of seasons you know, at home. Let's talk about Manchester City. That one-all draw with Everton now looks like two really costly points dropped in the context of Everton's defeat to Brighton now. Erling Haaland, uh, there has been a bit of debate in England about whether or not he has made Manchester City worse. It largely results-based analysis due to them having been seven points behind Arsenal uh, on the table. He has 21 goals. Phil Foden has seven. No other player has more than three. They no longer have many avenues to goal. Bridgie, did the numbers stack up 
for Manchester City is Erling Haaland being a focal point of this team as dazzling as it is individually actually a worse function for the team? Yes, it's absolutely disgusting. Probably one of the worst signs I've ever seen in Premier League history. It's a joke. 21 goals. How dare he take all the limelight away from these Manchester City midfielders? Please do me a favour. Chuck the stats books out the window. This guy's a freak. Any team would want him. And the, the, yeah, they've been crying out for this guy since Sergio Aguero had left. You know, Jesus didn't do it. He's a joy to watch. He doesn't get many chances. I mean, it was funny watching the game. Um, it was Leeds against Man City and my daughter had said to me, oh, you know, he doesn't. He hasn't touched the ball many times. I was like, you've just jinxed it. This guy's going to score. Um, so, you, you know, I, I, yeah, you can say that the players aren't sharing the workload around or getting as many goals, but basically they had to step up and get the goals for City when they didn't have a number nine. And now they've realised that if they just put, put something inside the box, this guy will score. So, um I'm not having that about Haaland. He's a class act. He's added everything to Man City. Tommy, I mean, has Pep's football evolved or devolved? Am I barking up the wrong tree here? I think it's evolved. I think that, you know, last year, like Bridgie mentioned, they they probably had, you know, a little bit like Spain used to have as a national team, but they, they played with a lot of midfielders and they would crowd the box and that's probably why they had so many different goal scorers because they often would play it without a traditional number nine in some situations. So I think that, you know, having Haaland hasn't taken any of that away. It's only given given them another avenue to goal and like Bridgie mentioned, what an avenue that is. And, um, you know, he can score all kinds of goals, you know, head, you know, running in behind, whatever he he can do it all so for me i think it's about the other players stepping up and maybe you know contributing a little bit more it doesn't have to all be about harlan but at the same time you know he what an asset he is to have in the team and what an outlet for them to have to um yeah to, to score goals against any opponent so completely agree with bridgie sorry not to disagree with you again but i do agree with you on this one bridgie that <laughs> <laughs> i think that um that there's not even a discussion he's made them a lot better Bridgie, is the World Cup break? Of course, Norway weren't at the World Cup, so Haaland spent it, you know, relaxing even on holiday for a bit. But does that break mean that he will actually be able to power through when the Champions League returns and play Premier League on weekends and Champions League midweek? Or is it still a case where Julian Alvarez will get his chance in the Premier League and will start to see Haaland saved for the Champions League ties more and more? I mean, what, what a luxury to have and what a problem to have as a Manchester City coach and coaching staff to know that you've got a World Cup winner um, ready to go and get back and then you've got a player that's had a rest um, and you've got two world-class strikers going in, in you know going into competition I think it's a, it's an absolute luxury because the games now as we've seen since the World Cup is, is finished the games are going to come thick and fast in the Premier League Champions League and Europa League and everything's going to start again there's cup competitions there's going to be a massive backlog of fixtures and I've just noticed the amount of players going down in the games over the last few days with cramp, um, because they, like I say, they've either they've either had a very very tough behind closed doors mini preseason when they haven't been within national clubs, and the players that have played um, over in the World Cup have obviously had to deal with the temperatures, the training regime. Um, so I think it's a, a great option to have, knowing that you've got Alvarez if Holland's feeling anything, and if you want to change it up as a plan B, or if you want to give each other a rest. Um, Sensational when you think going forward and the chase in Arsenal. I think they're, they're more equipped now, Man City, to catch Arsenal and pip them for the Premier League title because if Arsenal don't spend, do they need to spend? And Ketty has come in as a striker when Jesus has been injured. Will they spend? We don't know. Um, will that put out Jesus's nose if they get a number nine? Who knows? Man City now at this point are geared up to win the Premier League, definitely. And they're going for the Champions League and I think they've got every chance of doing that. With Alvarez, you know, um, will he, you know, is is he happy to be on the bench? That's something I'm not sure about. And yeah. uh, obviously so far he hasn't really had too many complaints given the form of Haaland. But one thing that I find that, you know, I'll be interested to see is can they play together? You know, obviously you've seen uh, Alvarez come on late in games when they need a goal and these types of scenarios. But, you know, seeing Alvarez and Haaland play together from the start for 90 minutes, that's something I'd love to see. So hopefully yeah. we can see that in the coming period. Do you know what? They've both got massive strengths and massive... I don't see a weakness with Haaland, uh, apart from his lack of touches in a game. 
Now, that can't be seen as a weakness because he's always in the right areas at the right time. I think Alvarez offers them something different when they need to get a little bit of possession. He drop, he can drop into the pockets of space and get on the ball. He, he, he likes to get the ball at his feet and he can stretch him the other way. He just hasn't got that timing and being in the right place at the right time like Haaland has. I don't think he'll ever get the amount of goals that he does, but I think he can be more influential when they need to have some dynamics and get somebody on the ball. Let's get to Spurs, because, Bridgie, I'm sure you'll have a few in the chamber about this one. Antonio Conte, perhaps not surprisingly, saying that they need another two players in the 50 to £70 million price range. And it is starting to sound like the familiar refrain of Antonio Conte. One good season, and then he starts talking about the lack of spending. How much of this are you buying into? I've just said Happy New Year to you, Teo, and now you bring this up. You're a disgrace, <laughs> mate. You're a disgrace. I make no I totally apologies. Agree with An- I totally agree with Antonio Conte. I think they need a 50 million, 70 million, 200 million players. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the same old shenanigans, isn't it? I'm, I'm really disappointed that 2-0, yet again, conceding an early like, goals. Tottenham seem to kickstart themselves when they go behind. They've shown it three or four times this season, especially... Um, over the, the Christmas period and before the World Cup that they only seem to kickstart and get the opportunity to play free-flowing football when the goal goes behind it. So I've, I've actually become bored of watching Tottenham, I've got to say that, um, until the last 15-20 minutes when they're trying to get back into a game. So I honestly wouldn't be bothered if we... If the board and the club got sick of Antonio Conte's comments and said, you know what, it is time for a change because... When the, the, I look at Son, the goal return that we're getting from him this time of year is nowhere near what his normal figures are like. I just find it staggering that he that he's not able to express himself. We're, we're very prog- pragmatic. I'm, I'm not enjoying the football, basically, so I think he's just making an excuse because they've got a lot of players at their disposal. Um, if it's anything we do need, it's it's a defender. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, you mentioned the defensive kind of um, approach that Conte has, and I think that's kind of been a cornerstone of all the sides that he's managed. But, you know, they, they, they've played, they've done it with a lot more conviction in the past. I think if you look at his Chelsea side from a number of years ago, even though they were defensively compact, they still kind of packed a punch at the other end. And that's kind of where Spurs have, you know, even though they've got the likes of Son, who hasn't hit the form, like you mentioned, but Kane, these players aren't necessarily able to, to showcase what they're, they're capable of. And I think that's probably the frustrating part. But on his comments about, you know, the need for, for more uh, expensive players in the market, I actually do agree with Conte because... I think if you can p- compare the Spurs squad to the likes of you know Liverpool, City, Chelsea, these kinds of teams, I think they are a few players short of really competing. And I think that you know last year Spurs came fourth, and I think that that was a fantastic achievement given their you know their their squad is is a little bit weaker. I think they're not quite in the top echelon of the squads, but they're probably the, the second echelon uh, in terms of caliber. And I think if you want to break into that top kind of couple on a more regular basis they probably need to spend uh, in, in the market a bit more aggressively so Bridgie you say you're not enjoying the football but how much of this is Antonio Conte and how he sets up the team and how much of this is individual performance because that Kane son partnership that was unstoppable it had uh, the record number of link-ups between two players assisting each other for goals this year the goals and the assists have completely dried up for son is that because Tottenham, they go behind so often in games, it means that they don't have space to work into, they've got to break down teams that maybe sit back and sit deep, and it's the utilisation of Son that's the problem? Or are you putting it on him as his individual performance that maybe we've just seen the peak of his career and now he's coming down the other side of the mountain? It's incredible to think, given he won the golden boot last season. How dare you have a go at Son? Not a chance is it him coming over the other side of the hill. He's still pick. He's still picking. What, what, and you're talking about the styles of play there, right? So if teams are going 1-2-0 up against Tottenham Hotspur, what are they going to do? They're going to drop off and defend in getting units. And Spurs, yeah, when, they, when they're allowed to go and change the system, put more numbers forward, instead of getting numbers behind the ball, they play a little bit, I call it cat and mouse. So they'll leave a few players high and wide so you can get that counter-attack in the transition to get back in the games. And they've proved that they're able to break down teams when they go go up and come back and win games. They couldn't against Aston Villa, obviously, because Unai Emery is on a different level. Um, so for me, coming out and playing a defensive style and very lethargic football, players like Kane, like Son, like 
Perisic, I know he's been playing the wing back and all that. Kulisevsky, Charleston, you, what the players you were talking about? You're talking about world class players all over the field. And Son, one goal and what is it, two assists this season? It's it's frightening how much that is that has changed. The partnership has gone. Players want to play on the attacking front foot when you've got that kind of pedigree to dispose it. And Conte is restricting them. And I go back to the same thing that we said about Steve Bruce with the same group of players. Eddie Howe comes in, gives him a license and understanding to know how and when and what. I don't think, I think Conte's got one way and the excuses are coming out. And I, I saw his mannerisms on the sideline um, in that game. And it's the first time I haven't seen him so animated. He almost looked disinterested and kind of ready to throw the towel in. So I think something I think something will give in the next month, whether it's him having enough or whether the, the club have enough, because it's only gonna I don't I can't see it getting any better, I can only see it getting worse. Plus the fact that Arsenal top of the league is just rubbing salt in the wounds to every Spurs fan. Because they're playing such good football. Yeah, and I think further to that, you look they, they obviously like you mentioned, uh, with Perisic playing as the wing backer, uh, the one thing I can't understand is is his persistence with playing with a back five and you know, it's something that Conte's always persisted with and it's something that he's known for. But, you know, given the amount of offensive talent that you just mentioned at their disposal, I think it would be you know, I would love to see them go back to a back four because, you know, a back five can be can be offensive if the wing backs are, are, are getting forward and, you know, expressing themselves. But you see with Spurs in their games, it's more the, def- the wing backs defensive are back, back five than a wing back attack. Exactly, and if, if they get pinned back, then all of a sudden you've got one less player going forward, and I think that's kind of been symbolic and maybe a bit of an issue for them, and they're not getting the numbers in advanced areas to, to create problems for the other team. So, I mean, I would love to see Conte change that up, but I, I'm not holding my breath. One more team I wanted to just put the microscope on very briefly because they do play in Australia uh, on Thursday morning, meaning that a lot of people may not be listening to the pod until after Southampton's crucial relegation six-pointer against Nottingham Forest. But Nathan Jones, three losses from three. There is a school of thought that his appointment was perhaps conceding that relegation was going to happen. However, I've now seen overnight that they're going to try and sign Mislav Orsic from Dinamo Zagreb. Uh, very much a late bloomer. He was actually playing against Melbourne Victory in the Asian Champions League only four years ago. And now uh, he's played, obviously, in the European Champions League with Zagreb, the Croatian national team. Maybe it's a sign that Southampton are going to try and spend their way out of trouble in January. But Bridgie, is Nathan Jones the manager that can keep Southampton up? Nathan Jones has got really good credentials over here. He's very well thought of from the you know the last team he was with, the coaching staff and ex-players. I was speaking to Lloyd Russo about him, um, who's obviously living in Australia. He's now in England at the moment on, for Christmas. He's got really good things to say about him. However, there's a difference between coaching in the Championship Division 1 as opposed to the Premier League because you've got a lot bigger egos to talk about. The players are kind of scratching their heads thinking, you know, the players are coming in thinking, well, hang on a minute, what's he going to offer us? What can he give us? So you've only got a short window of opportunity to showcase what you can do and what you can deliver. And like you said, the first few matches have not gone his way. So the players the players are trying to buy into the new manager, but when results are going against you, it's such a tough thing to be able to do. All I can say is I'm hoping that the board do back him because they were the ones that have changed it. I think if you were, what you were, your comments were there, Teo, if they were resigned to being in the championship, they would have kept, kept um, Hassan Hutton because the amount of work that he was doing with the development coaches at the academy and everything, that's how he, he, ha- he stayed there so long because of his relationship with the club as a whole. He didn't just manage that first team. He was involved with everything. They realised they had to make a change to get them out of this relegation. So they've got to back the manager. And I think instead of being a selling club that we've seen, I used to call it Liverpool B team because Liverpool seem to buy all their players um, and, and all their great players. It's kind of, they've got to back them and they've got to, they've got to spend if they want to survive. Because what I've seen so far, they're not good enough. And I don't think the manager is going to get the buy-in from them players that are there. Tommy, one thing I wanted to ask you about was a manager that comes in with the team still in the Premier League potentially takes them down to the championship and then brings them back up to the Premier League. We were trying to think of incidences where this has happened. It's a rarity. Is the experience of presiding over a relegation something that will mean that Nathan Jones's time at Southampton is a short one? Is it actually impossible to make a hiring to prepare for the championship, especially if the ambition is to spend your parachute payments, to use your cash reserves and to bounce straight back up? 
Yeah, well, I think that, you know, touching on his appointment, I think it was a little bit of a surprising one because of his inexperience, like Bridgie mentioned. But, you know, talking about can a manager survive getting relegated, I think they can. I think it all depends on the context and how it happens. You know, you see sometimes teams in the last kind of throw of the dice if they're in the relegation positions um, with, you know, a couple of games remaining or five games remaining, you know, bring in a new manager. And sometimes it, it is, you know, a roll of the dice to see if they can survive, but it's also with one eye on the championship. And I think in that kind of situation, um, yeah, a manager could survive that and could flourish in, in the next season. But in, in Nathan Jones's situation, I think that given that he's had, um, you know, he, he's going to have potentially six months to, to turn things around. I think it would be difficult. I think if he can't find a way to keep Southampton, Southampton in the Premier League, that his days are numbered because, um, like Bridgie mentioned, um, getting the buy-in from the players and getting the belief from the players, which is, you know, probably the most important thing for a manager, is difficult if, if you've had that long and weren't able to turn the fortunes around. Yeah, I came across this when I was at Sunderland as a, as a youngster before I went to Leeds with Peter Reid. We got promoted from the Championship to the Premier League. We didn't survive. We went back down. The club stuck by him because of the success he'd given. And I'll never forget, there was a the season that we got to the Championship playoffs in the final against Charlton. It went to extra time and penalties. And suddenly we didn't go up. Michael Gray missed the penalty decider. And Peter Reid, we're thinking, right, where do we go? This is... we. We've just missed out on promotion back to the Premier League. Are we gonna? Is he going to have enough? He got on the bus and he said, not one of you players are leaving this football club. Give me one more season with you and we will get promoted next year. As long as we all get the buy-in that you know I'm staying here. Bob Murray's given me the, the, the choice to stay. I'm staying. I'm not going anywhere because there was a few clubs interested in Peter Reid. And we all made a pact on that bus outside of Wembley after Mickey Gray missed the penalty to stay together for that season. And guess what? We got promoted with a record amount of points. The difference between Nathan at the minute with Southampton is he hasn't had the success with the players yet. He's still trying to win them over. We bought into what it was and we knew what Peter Reid was all about. So he's 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 got a lot he's got to do a lot this season to to show that he's capable of handling a Premier League team and to show them what he's capable of doing as a manager. And not just a manager, but also as a mentor and building relationships with the players. That's what I've heard he's very, very good at from his um, colleagues. Well, watch this space. It's going to be a big transfer window for Southampton amongst a number of teams, and that is where we will lead off on the other side of this short break, here on The Gegenpod. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Premier League star Michael Bridges joining us. And the transfer window, this is where it gets really interesting. Newcastle Bridgie, we've seen them draw nil all a couple of times and they're certainly defensively very solid. Of course, the acquisition of Sven Botman was seen as an astute piece of business. But uh, give me one realistic transfer for Newcastle, given that they haven't spent a huge amount. I mean, Isaac was their transfer record. Of course, they bought in Chris Wood, probably for overs to weaken a relegation rival in Burnley. Botman, we've just mentioned. Bruno Guimaraes looks like a marvellous piece of business. There's no way that uh, they'd sell him for even a tenth of, uh, or ten times what they bought him for this time last season. The genius of Eddie Howe knows no bounds. What is his next big move? Yeah, I mean, the the open checkbook by all accounts. Um, are they going to go and spend that to try and secure Champions League football? We don't know because sometimes Eddie Howe does not want to do that. He's Like you say, he's got a plan. He doesn't want anybody to disrupt the the apple cart or the this there you go that's a pun for you but it doesn't want to disrupt the the culture that he has developed and I think the news of Ronaldo I heard if Newcastle make the Premier League Ronaldo has a uh, the Champions League sorry Ronaldo has an option to sign for Newcastle United Eddie Howe will not have him at that football club believe you me I know there's there's massive well, money outside j- of- just to clarify 
He's he was asked about it again uh, today pre-game, and he said he does not believe that to be the case. And of course, he had the chance to sign Ronaldo on a free transfer, and he he rubbished that in a press conference as well. So, Bridgie, yeah. surely they're not going to foist a R- Ronaldo onto him. No chance. They can't do that because, well, well, yes, they actually could because of the money in the the things, the shirt sales, and all the rest off the back of it, the the worldwide commodity that he is. But whether he plays him or not is another thing. No chance. Um, Newcastle, the big talk up here, there's either Tillismans or Madison from Leicester that they are after because that midfield with, with Bruno, um, Longstaff, Almiron, Joe Linton, I think they were the, not the weakest one, but I would say the one that would be the sacrifice in that would possibly be Longstaff, who's the, you know, the local boy. Um, and if they could get somebody in of the Madison or the Tillingsman, I think they would go for it. And I think there's also talk of a left back, and because Dan Burns being playing there, Botman and Shaw have got this remarkable relationship going. Um, Dan Burns slotted in there, but he's not he's not really known as a left back. And to be fair to him, so I think that's the big talk. So who knows who that could be? And Isak coming back from injury is going to be like a new signing anyway. So very exciting times. And like I say, I do not know whether they will go for a number nine because I do believe it will be Isak playing up there or Wilson, who's in England international. It's the midfield that I've heard they're going heavy at. Tommy, have you got one at the top of the uh, the wish list for Newcastle? Well, I think Tillemans, I think, and obviously Bridgie just mentioned him, and I've always been a big fan of him and what he's done at Leicester. And we, we saw this morning him hit the bar late, actually, to when they had a chance to equalise, which was unlucky. But no, I think that he's a player that would add a lot. And um, like Bridgie mentioned, I think that with Eddie Howe, he needs a player that he know will come in, work hard and, and fight for, for every inch on the field for him. He doesn't really uh, have the luxury players in the site, so he needs to have, you know, players of that calibre, like the Madison or the Tielemans and these kinds of players. And I, I personally would love to see Tielemans go there. And I think that he could bring not only a goal-scoring threat, but just add a lot of quality to their team. So that's one I, I'm keeping my eye on. Now, Liverpool, uh, Jurgen Klopp suggesting uh, that they might be done after spending on Cody Gakpo, but can they really wait until summer before spending on another midfielder, Tommy? Well, potentially. I think we, we saw, obviously, in the last game, Harvey Elliott play in the midfield, which isn't his you know traditional position. So um, they're obviously looking to, to plug gaps. But also, you know, Henderson was out for the last game. Milner's coming back from injury. So they do have a little bit, of, a few injuries in that position. And obviously, with Gakpo coming in, who's probably more in the front third uh, positionally. But I think that, you know, for me, it, their, their issues at the moment aren't necessarily um, positional. I think they do have enough depth and you know with the likes of uh, Keita as well who hasn't been playing as often as we saw historically I think that you know they definitely have enough options but um, they probably have issues in other areas of the field and like we touched on before you know conceding goals quite easily and obviously not being uh, convincing in the front third is probably um, bringing you know bringing all these other kind of positions like the midfield more to the attention to the center of the attention when historically um, yeah, you know, when, when they were scoring goals more easily, it was probably going a little bit less uh, noticed. So for me, I think that they don't necessarily need to go into the market in the midfield, but it wouldn't surprise me if they do. All right, Bridgie, I'll ask the next one to you. Uh, the striker discussion for Manchester United. Here are some of the names that the press have attached. Uh, Luke de Jong, Memphis Depay, Dusan Vlajevic, if Juventus want to cut their losses on him. Gonzalo Ramos, who we score, saw score a hat-trick at the World Cup, or even Rafael Liao, who's coming out of contract at Milan and might be available for a knockoff price as a result. Any of those grab you? Don't be surprised you see Ramos, uh, Newcastle go after Ramos, by the way. You're the Portuguese lad, the big Ooh, okay. talk, talk of that one. Uh, Liao, I'd love to see him in the Premier League at any team. Um, he's been an absolute joy to watch. But if you're talking about Manchester United fans... You know, I, I don't think they need that De Jong in the midfield. Depay, is he similar to what they've already had with Martial and Rashford? The, you know who I would love to see at United and Vlaovic? I absolutely think he is such a special player. Think of the impact he had at Juve when he first went there. He's, he's a powerhouse. He can play with his back to goal. He's an aerial presence. And I think he has got that air of arrogance and backs his own ability to handle the pressure at Manchester United. I think every Man United fan, if they have a look at his goals and what he's done and scored, and when he's a settled player, he could be an absolute treat for them. I think he's he's the type of player they're crying out for at this moment in time. Yeah, you, you see how many wingers and number 10s that United have at their disposal. I think that you know, looking at the likes of Depay and 
Leal and these kinds of players, I don't think they will add much to you know anything different to what they already have. So I think that, like Bridgie mentioned, a player like Vlahovic or, or Ramos, they need, really need to go for a, a, an out-and-out number nine like those two players. And, um, yeah, I, I think they shouldn't rush, though, because at the moment you've seen you know Rashford and these types of players step up and you know they're not struggling for goals at the minute. So I think that it's more important that, that they make the right signing rather than just signing signing uh, another number for the front third because they've already got a wealth of options up there. Joao Felix, he's been linked with the top six teams. Uh, Atletico Madrid want a huge loan fee. They want his wages covered, but they do not want to put a clause in for a permanent transfer. Basically, they want to recoup some money. They just went through the experience with Griezmann. Now they want to pull a Swifty elsewhere. Uh, Bridgie, do you think it is a good idea to come in for Joao Felix if you're a Premier League team, given he's never played in that competition before and he would cost a pretty penny with no guarantee that if he works out, you'd even be able to keep him? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting one. I mean, the only winner here is Joao Felix himself, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and Atletico Madrid getting a fee for a loan. You can't keep him. Just go and get the best out of him. It's an interesting situation. Would I want to go and get him from what I've seen over the last season? He, he hasn't been outstanding. I don't think he was out that outstanding at the World Cup. He's got the pedigree. Um, I wouldn't be willing to take a gamble on him. I'm sorry. I, w- I would let him just sit there and rot and let let um, Simeone deal with that one because I know they're trying to pull a swift one yet again. Yeah, I think that you know he, he is hugely talented and I think he would improve probably every squad in the world. So there's no doubt about you know his potential. But um, at this point, it still is potential. So if there's no long-term benefit for the club in terms of, you know, uh, making it a permanent transfer, then I can't really see clubs jumping at that because, um, like Bridgie mentioned, he's not experienced in the Premier League. So um, it can take a little bit of time, as we've seen historically, for players to come in and adjust. So why would you allow him that time and then see him go back to Atletico Madrid? It doesn't really make sense for me, and um, I don't really expect that to, to unfold. It's always hard to get business done in the January window, but Chelsea, maybe no such problems because they are about to fork out up to $120 million for Enzo Fernandez, World Cup winner with Argentina. Tommy, is this massive overs? And if Fernandez is going for that price, can Brighton just write their own ticket for Alexis McAllister? Because they did such a great job selling Mark Cucurella to Chelsea. I mean... Have, have they actually priced themselves out of selling McAllister or is it more a case that Fernandez being 21 with all that upside, that's what Chelsea are paying for potentially here? Yeah, that's it. I think, you know, fresh off winning the World Cup, the stocks for, for McAllister and for Fernandez are, are as, you know, they're, they're red hot and it's not surprising to see these kind of amounts being thrown about. But I do actually think that is overs and... Um, yeah, I guess I have been saying this about most transfers for years and the, just the way the market is now... Um, yeah, I guess that's just the nature of the market. You know, clubs either pay the, the asking fee or they have to accept life without that player. And that's just the unfortunate reality right now. And um, obviously, I do think that both players are fantastic. But I do think with um, McAllister, you know, he's, he's already proven himself in the Premier League. And I think that playing with a club like Brighton, um, he, I think that he is definitely capable of taking a step up to, to one of the top teams in, in the competition. Um, whereas with Fernandez, you know, he's obviously young and there's a there's a lot more room for growth there but I do think that he's probably a little bit more inexperienced and probably not at the same level right now which uh, obviously had a great world cup but you know over a longer period of time I think that McAllister has has probably done more so um, yeah it's interesting and I think 120 million is a lot and Chelsea has some really good midfielders he'll have to compete with there so um, it'll be interesting to see how that one works out but but for me, I think that McAllister would be a, 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 a shrewd signing for any um, top team in the Premier League. Bridgie, it was great scenes when McAllister came back to Brighton and they changed the entire reception of the club to be pictures of him and the World Cup trophy. All the staff gave him a standing ovation. Yeah. Would he actually want to leave? Or is the lure of the top end of the Premier League too hard to pass up if a team does come in for him? I thought it was absolutely brilliant, you know, because I, I was at Bolton Wanderers when um, Johnny Ostelicopoulos Janikopoulos, Bridgie. Thank you very much. That's the geezer. He he just won the Euros with Greece and he came back to Bolton Wanderers and Stelios, it was amazing. All the canteen was done out in the, the Greek colours. We had the Greek food on and the highlight for me was Phil Brown smashing the plates together. 
and smashing it, and all you all you saw was blood running down his hands, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer bloke. Oh, no. Stelios was like, uh, "Boss, we have we have special plates for that, you know. You don't need to use these ones." So it totally backfired. But it, it, when I saw McAllister returning from the World Cup, it was exactly the same kind of scenes. I thought it was it was lovely. That shows the team. Would he like to stay? He's just won the World Cup, right? If any teams are going to come in from that are in the Champions League, he's going to want to be part of it. And I was just about as hearing Tommy talk about them two players in McAllister and in uh, Hernandez. You were talking about getting that that kind of money. Liverpool are crying out for two players in this midfield like these. I think at this moment in time, who would I go for? Um, Enzo, you're getting Val. You're getting a youngster who hasn't proven himself. I'd probably, if I was Chelsea or Liverpool, I'd be going out for McAllister. And I'm sure. The lure of Champions League football, playing at the pinnacle after the World Cup, and how he's done—he he he would choose to to move, no doubt about it. Teo, money talks, mate. Money talks. Loyalty's gone in the game. I think that's a pretty good segue into Sui Cristiano Ronaldo done deal in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's right, Bridget. You thought your days of talking about Ronaldo were over, but we have to mention Al Nasser. Now we touched on the uh, the alleged clause with going back to Newcastle if they're in the Champions League. But uh, what have you made of the announcement of Ronaldo in Saudi Arabia? He's appeared at a press conference. I thought it was very underwhelming that they announced him with an iPhone photo. And to be honest, I thought we were going to see the Saudi League and the rights for that competition being pushed out for free all over the world. It almost feels like he is actually just making peace with being a billionaire's plaything here because are we even going to be able to watch these games? Are they going to take place in a vortex if Cristiano Ronaldo scores in a forest? Does it make a sound? Bridgie, explain this to me here. Uh, I hope they don't get any TV rights because I'll tell you what, even if they do, I'm not going to be switching on. I don't want to see him play ever again. Um, he's, he's run his cause with me. He's And to think that he's turned his back, his comments coming out saying I had loads of European clubs chase me. I had teams around the world after my signature. I am a unique player and I deserve this unique deal. Please do, do me a favour. If you've got enough money, you don't need to go over there. He could have gone and... He, he, he should have gone back into Europe, but I think he knows his days are numbered. He's finally come to the reality of it. I, I love everything that he has done. There's no doubt about it. We've seen a great talisman, but I'm really upset that he what he did at United with the comments with Piers Morgan, the way he went about um, this transfer deal. I, I, it's just left a bit of taste in my mouth. And then you, I look at the other the other side um, from Argentina with Messi. He wins the Copa America. He wins the World Cup. He, he, he shies away from that kind of limelight and it's not just all about Messi, it's about his family, his country, his clubs. That he's at. I've got so much more respect for for Messi. Um, and yeah, Ronaldo and Saudi Arabia team. I don't. What's the team that he signed for? That's how much notice I've taken, to be honest with you. Al, Al Nasser. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I wouldn't mind the contract, mind. I've got to be honest. I hope I, I wouldn't mind managing Al Nasser. Um, yeah, but nah. <laughs> Uh, Tommy, thoughts on Ronaldo's new deal? D- does it move the meter at all with you? Not really. I think that you know, once he 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 you know left in the manner that he did at Manchester United, um, everybody was fascinated to see where he was going to end up because you know we, we we spoke about Eddie Howe's view on him earlier, but all the managers in Europe and at the top clubs where Ronaldo would have liked to go, you know, we, they obviously know what value Ronaldo can bring on and off the field in terms of commercial and these types of things but I think that everybody's kind of um, disillusioned or or not interested because of all the baggage that comes along with him and um, I think because of that I don't think he had would have had too many options at all so I think that you know these kinds of leagues in Saudi I thought the only one where he might end up was the MLS and I don't know if there's any talk of that but I could have seen a move like that you know unfold but um, you know, to go to Saudi Arabia, I think that it was more an option, uh, more a situation, sorry, of uh, not having the options in Europe that he would have liked. Do you know what's upset is even more? I don't. I hope. I hope it's not true. What I witnessed and somebody sent me um, on Twitter was that he wanted the number seven shirt, obviously because of the Ronaldo brand. The player at the club that had the number seven shirt didn't want to give it up. So what did they do? They just terminated him and paid him up and said, "See you later." <laughs> So Ronaldo has already cost. He's not only has he taken three hundred and fifty million, which he had to do. He's cost some. He's cost somebody their job already. He's only, he hasn't even. He hasn't even set foot in the club. All right, a couple of quick hits to finish on the Gagan Pod today. It's an FA Cup weekend. Uh, so Arsenal's got Oxford, uh, United, Manchester City's got Chelsea back to back. Of course, they play in the league, then they play in the FA Cup. 
Tommy and Bridgie, uh, any experiences playing for small teams in a big cup set or any experiences playing in a big team that got rolled by a smaller team in a cup set? Were you ever part of the magic of the cup? I was actually, and when I was um, playing at FC Utrecht, we, we had our Europa League qualifiers um, one year, and um, I think our first game was against uh, a team from Luxembourg that were called Doodle Lounge, and I remember we went and we played them in, in their stadium, and there was about 100 people there, so it was the furthest thing you could imagine when you think of European football, but they actually did us, and they beat us 1-0, um, they got a penalty and then defended with 10 men for the entire game, and... I think um, we were only fresh into, into pre-season, but you know, after the euphoria of the, years, the year before of qualifying for Europe, to go out in a manner like that was humiliating. So that was a situation where you know, a relatively fancied team was, was completely beaten, and um, obviously I was on the receiving end of that game. And unfortunately, I cannot beat that, Tommy, because I'd love to say that I played for a big club and got beat by the Minnows or played for Minnows and we got one over the big club. My career had really bad cup runs. The I've got to say, like we never, we were never in the cups long enough at all the clubs I'd been at. It's quite, I, I think the best one I had was a penalty win over Everton at Goodison Park when we were in the championship. But yeah, that's, I, I was, no wonder managers didn't end up signing as I got rid of us because I was terrible when it came to the cups. Oh, Tommy, uh, next time we have a Nations League break on Optus uh, Sport, I'll make sure to get you in as the Luxembourg correspondent. <laughs> they're actually, hey, they're they're actually not a bad watch these days. And now in the uh, the Nations League, with all the tiers of football, they're competitive in pretty much all their games. Luxembourg these days. So hey, maybe you were there at the start of something, Tommy. Um, now, just just quickly on La Liga, uh, Atletico Madrid playing Barcelona this weekend. Always a big deal. Antoine Griezmann, he came back from the World Cup with pink hair just for the sake of it. Are either of you taking Atletico a little bit more seriously now that they're up to fourth and they seem to have got all the jitters of their early season poor form out of the system just in time for Barcelona to come to town? About Atletico Madrid, yeah, we have got to take them serious. I think they're, they're going to bounce back. You're showing after the World Cup... Um, that Barca have slipped up, Madrid have gone on a few runs and Atletico, I, th- I think Simeone might have found his zest again to get the best out of them. So, And if Griezmann wants to have pink hair in that game, I'm looking forward to watching it because there's no doubt he'll have an impact on it and he'll want to get one over his team. Yeah, obviously Argentina winning the World Cup has probably given Simeone a bit of a spring in his step. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, he looks more engaged than, than he did before the World Cup. And I think his team looks more engaged too. And I think that this is a really difficult game for Barcelona because obviously they're, they're top of the table now on goal difference. And there's a lot riding on this game. Um, looking yeah. forward to that athletic one. So for me, you know, Griezmann as well, like Richie just mentioned, he's brought his World Cup form back to, back to Atletico. So I think that they're definitely a team like we've seen in previous seasons, that nobody likes to play against. So really looking forward to that game. And very last, the uh, WSL is currently still in its winter break and uh, there's no international women's football going on at the moment either. So a little bit of a lull, uh, not not in Australia, of course, with the A-League women's in full flight, but certainly for the WSL that is the case. But there's one transfer rumour which popped up and you don't see Australians linked to Real Madrid every day, but Hayley Razzo, Tommy, this would be a massive transfer if they are able to sign her. Real Madrid, of course, they're yeah, always challenging and finishing second to Barcelona in that competition, but they're having a good year in the Champions League too. This would be huge, not just uh, for Razo, but for the profile of the Australian game if we do have one of our star internationals go to Real Madrid. Absolutely, and you know, so close to the World Cup, I think what a boost that would give, like you mentioned, not only her, but, but the national team and the profile here and... Um, I think, you know, if obviously she just came back from injury not too long ago, which set her back a little bit. But since she came back and, and in the period leading up to that injury, I thought that she's been maybe the Matilda's most consistent performer. So I've always rated her very highly. And, um, yeah, you know, to see an Australian play for, for a Real Madrid, I, I, I'm assuming she would obviously be the first ever player to play for Real Madrid and or a Barcelona or any kind of team in Spain at that calibre. So what that would be fantastic to see. And got fingers and toes crossed for her that 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 move comes off all right gentlemen thank you for joining me on the gegen pod today tommy Orr, uh there's heaps of premier league still rolling on through the rest of the week and uh, fa cup this weekend so enjoy i'm sure you'll have plenty to sink your teeth into looking forward to it absolutely <laughs> and bridgie uh thank you once again for joining us from the uk uh where are you heading this weekend in the world of football or are you spending it with your family 
this weekend. Well, I'm actually going to go to Leeds West Ham game, um, re- representing the club there for that game. And then at the weekend, I've actually got a free weekend. I'm going to watch my daughter. She is playing um, down in Hartlepool. It's going to be absolutely freezing. And my son has got a game on the Sunday. So it's a family of football. And I was just, you, Tommy just mentioned the white shirt of Real Madrid there, looking at you as in the sunshine. Tommy's got a lovely colour to him. Theo, I can tell you're sunburnt and I'm looking whiter than my walls here. So you can tell I haven't seen much sunlight and I'm not going to see much of the weekend, but I'm looking forward to watching the family. Well, that sounds like a pretty fun weekend for Michael Bridges and a big thanks to him and Tommy Orr for joining us on the Gegen Pod today. The Premier League continues on Thursday morning, the 5th of January, with four games beginning at 6.30am Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And don't miss the blockbuster on Friday between Chelsea and Manchester City from 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time. La Liga kicks off a big weekend on Saturday morning with Elche against Celta Vigo at 4.30am Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And you can see Real Madrid play away to Villarreal at 2.15am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Sunday. And that blockbuster clash between Barcelona and Atletico Madrid at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Monday. The WSL is still on its break, but we'll be back with a bang on Saturday the 14th of January. And Amy Duggan will be back on the Gegen Pod next week to look ahead to all things women's football and the WSL as well. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri, for the Optus Sport Football Podcast today. Wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to hit subscribe and rate us five stars while you're there. We'll catch you next time on the Gegenpot.